Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. We're back in the studio. I've had a nice trip to Europe. You did, you went IMCAS over in, in Paris? Indeed, IMCAS and a bit of time in London, a bit of time in Stockholm for Beauty Through Science and a few other things and you've got me back at work. Yeah. Back well, in the studio. And you're suffering with uh, jet lag. No, I'm not too bad now. I'm all right. Just power through. And it helps that we've got a rock star plastic surgeon with us all the way from California. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Tally. Um, tell us how you've been going since uh, lockdown all finished and everything got back to normal. You guys back rocking and pumping out facelifts, etc. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's been crazy over here. I, um, I, I loved lockdown. Lockdown was the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And we had it maybe for about uh, two and a half months or so. And for me, it was just pure heaven because I worked six days a week, 16 hour days. And it was like, I could never do that otherwise. So I loved lockdown. Your, 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 your country, unfortunately, went a little overboard. So I, I hope you guys are okay. Well, uh, <laughs> we need, they, need to keep they, the vermin out. You know, we, we kept yeah, ourselves safe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, they, 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 they throw science and everything kind of out the door over here. and um, But it worked out. So yeah. it was nice for a couple months. And now that we came back, even I'd say the plastic surgeons that were the lesser wanted, they're busy. Like yeah. everybody's crazy busy. And it's because everyone's got this time to recover. And, um, you know, we're in the, the luxury market. We kind of fall in the same market as like fast boats and cars and things like that. So all that stuff's been selling more and people, uh, they have more disposable income somehow if they're in that bracket. Uh, but we're also about to take a hit soon. So hopefully we'll get some vacation. Yeah. There's some crazy, crazy economic times ahead, it would seem. So um, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see how that all plays out. But do you want to just give the listeners, I mean, obviously Jake and I are very aware of who you are. We've um, been following you for quite a while. You've got a huge profile um, and very well respected globally. But for any of the listeners that um, have been living under a rock and don't know who you are. Could you just give us a little bit of a, a background about who you are, <laughs> what you do, and, and how you came to, you know, um, such prominence? Well, well of course, uh, I'm, I'm a facial plastic surgeon. I'm, I'm in Beverly Hills, and I have operated in Dubai and different areas, uh, but I'm, I'm mainly here in Beverly Hills. And my, my specialties when I started they were uh, birthmarks and uh, pediatric stuff and reconstruction, nose reconstruction, and then cosmetic was my third. But uh, living in Beverly Hills, it quickly shot off where after six months, I had a full crazy practice working 16 hours a day and doing just cosmetics. So I was uh, I became known as one of the big facelift people on this side of the country uh, doing lip lift, which uh, I, I didn't know that I was the one that brought it back to life after 30 years. But I guess I was I'm doing a lot of like cool advanced eyelid stuff for Vision Rhino stuff. And for a long time, I was doing 20 to 40 injectables a day. So wow. um, I, I was in the office. If I told an actress to come in at 6 a.m., she'd be there at 6 a.m. on a Saturday <laughs> because it was hard for me to get there. And so I was doing a lot of injectables, a lot of lasers, and uh, became 
pretty, pretty decent at doing them. Got a big name around here, even though I never marketed it. So I became a teacher for injectables. And now that I'm not injecting much, I still, I'm pretty comfortable with the anatomy. So I teach everybody as much as I know. So as an injector, I'm curious, who taught you to inject? Where did you learn your skill? And and I guess, you know, the anatomy when you're injecting, even though it's, you know, it's the same anatomy, we, we see it slightly differently as an injector. So who taught you that side of things? So the primary doctors that taught me injections were, uh, I, I was, I trained in New York. I was at Columbia and Cornell. Uh, we didn't get much exposure in residency. It was afterwards. I was with Andrew Giacono, who's a surgeon in New York yeah. for a year. He was doing a decent amount back then, a very logical, smart guy. So that, that was back in like 2013. And uh, he taught me a lot. Stephen Perlman taught me a lot. And then when I came back, just based on the anatomy knowledge, because I'm a deep plane surgeon, I, I really got good at it quickly. And I had a vo- high volume. So seeing so many patients every day, you really listen to all the problems they have. And even though I'm not a listener, like I'm not a good listener, but like, you know, I, I like to learn. So even if like a ninja walks in the room and he wants to talk about being a ninja, I'm like, yeah, tell me about being a ninja. So like I learned a lot about uh, problems that people have had. So that taught me quickly because mm. one patient's been to five doctors and they explain everything. And I got good that way. And after a while, I became more and more realistic as years go on. So you start to see the tiny things you never saw before little bits of swelling here, little bits of swelling there, how each filler reacts, how it reacts 10 years later. And you're like, oh my God, like I injected this filler, but it's a different filler now. Like it, it, so you start to like see these things and um, nobody believes you when you talk about them. And then like takes five years and then some other doctors like, no, I saw the same thing. You're right. So (laughs) that's been my life with, with injectables, but being the deep plane surgeon, it's really nice because you really see all the levels of the face, all the layers uh, and I, I was in, I'm, I'm a professor in, 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 in Monterrey, Mexico. And I try to explain to them, like, listen, you know, you're teaching residents and you're teaching them facelifts, but you're not teaching them anything when you're doing this mass placation. Like you can just go cut some skin. There's no anatomy there. And I try to explain, oh, I say a deep plain. It's like living in Monterrey. Monterrey, you have the valley and you got the two mountains. Mm. And if you're on this side of the mountain, you can't see across to the other side or barely down to the bottom. If you live on that side, you can't see the other side. But if you live, <laughs> if you live right in the middle, which is like the deep plain, you see everything. You see this side, you see that side, you see down the valley. So uh, it, it really helped me a lot and really helps me teach as well. That's fantastic. And I gather in the lockdown, you also started your own podcast. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah. The reality pill. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yes. The reality pill. So that was a plan I had for a long time to start a podcast. I'd, I'd given a lot of lectures called the myths and bullshits of plastic surgery. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> I would give these lectures to patients and doctors and really trying to get people to live in reality and stop, you know, uh, stop bullshitting everybody. And so yeah. um, during lockdown, I had time and I decided, you know what, I'm going to start the podcast. And I, I am a doctor, but I'm not only a doctor, I have a lot of interests. And my whole goal was to talk about things that I could not intelligently talk about, but be interested in. So my own interests. And really dispel the myths that you would see in any of these professions or fields, you know. So I would interview, you know, Chris Jenner and really go over the bullshit about what people believe uh, believe about her, but the reality of what she does to get to where she is. Or I talked to Sam Cassell, who's a basketball coach, and talked to him about stuff. And then probably fifty percent of it's medical. And we would pick a topic with respected people and really try to review, like, hey. What is the bullshit in your field? What are the myths that people are spewing out there? And what should patients know and doctors know? So it became a popular podcast actually amongst 
other doctors and injectors and then patients researching surgery. And it was really, really nice. I did a ton of episodes and I've been trying to catch up on my next season, which I have like really, really good guests lined up, but I just haven't had the time. Yeah. Well, you know, if you want us on, we're happy to come on. It's, it's okay. No <laughs> <Yes>. problem. <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask you, Ben, um, as um, a plastic surgeon who also does injectables, what do you, what do you feel, um, what do you think the impact has been on surgery with the advances in injectables in terms of facelifts potentially not being required as, 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 quick, as, as, as soon as they may have been or using injectables right. as an adjunct to surgery? I'm just interested with your perspective because you're, you're quite unique in your skill set. So, yeah, I, I tell, for, first off, just as far as like knowing the face, I tell all my residents and all my fellows, uh, you're going to go out into practice and you're going to start practicing. And if you stay a surgeon and just a surgeon, it's going to take you 10 years to 20 years to understand the face. You're, you're not going to touch enough people to really ever figure it out with fat grafting or just lifting. If you do injectables, you're touching 20, 30, 40 people a day. You're really learning a lot about volume and things that go wrong and how other people try to correct it. And it really advances you faster as like someone who understands aging face. Mm -hmm. So I, I tell them it's a necessity to do it. If you want to be an aging face surgeon, if you want to be a rhino surgeon, who cares? If you want to be a breast surgeon, who cares? If you want to be an aging face surgeon, you have to know. And I never look at fillers or fat grafting and lifting as two mutually exclusive things or necessarily have to be combined. I kind of look at the practicality of the situation. You know, you have a patient who comes in, they don't even want surgery and you got to look at them. And some people you say, I can fix everything with a filler. Some people you say, I know you want to fix everything with a filler, but all I can do is 1% of what you want. And maybe I do that with a filler. Maybe I do with some skin tightening in a filler something like that. Um, it's also nice when to be able to do both because I can't fix everything with lifting. Lifting is lifting. Mm. Yeah, I get it. surgery and people think it's a fix, but it's not a fix all you're lifting. We have deflation, volume changes, skin quality changes. So I tell them, listen, I'm going to lift you. That's like 80% of what's going on. I don't know what the other 20%, you know, there might be volume loss. There might be other muscle contracture. You might need to touch up with Botox later and maintain, you might, might still need a dot of filler. You might still need skin tightening treatments. And when I do this, people, when I say this, people are more realistic about understanding the multifactorial factors, you know, that go on with, with aging. Yeah. And that brings us nicely onto yeah. the topic of the day, which is what happens when lip fillers aren't enough. Now, you know, I'm an injector and like you said, I see lots and lots of different faces and I've certainly made mistakes in the past where I've tried to push the limits of what I can do with the filler only to realize that it doesn't quite do what I wanted it to. So there'll be a lot of injectors here who are new to injecting and they're just sort of starting their journey. So I thought a good starting point for this podcast would be to talk about, you know, what does happen to the aging lip what happens as we get older and what are some of the things that our patients complain about with their lips so maybe um ben if you just want to take sure. us through what you know what you see both as i guess an injector but also as a surgeon and then maybe we could relate what you would do in your injectables room versus when you would bail out and say no you need to go to the or is that a good sort of segue of, of how we might do this podcast yeah yeah, yeah. so i i i have seen uh different types of aging overall and kind of uh, what people need to know about it, whether they're patients or uh, injectors. So the first is just basic regular aging and how it works in different ethnic groups and people with 
different skeletal features. So those are like the main things that you want to differentiate between because uh, a white person is going to age completely differently than a black person. And yeah. when they come in, uh, they a white person, white people is what face the thing was made for. Aging face surgery is made for white people. It's not made for Asians or Filipinos or black people. You know, that's like 5% of the population when it gets to aging face stuff. And so when you look at the ethnic characteristics, you start to realize what's happening in each tissue layer. So mm. um, not the denser tissues that you see in olive skin or darker skin, but let's say lighter skin, uh, what you see over time, and this is the majority of our populations, so that's usually what we're talking about, is there's a deflation in all the layers. And the, the, the volumetric layers or the important ones in the skin, when you look at it from underneath, it's really the, out of the layers, you have the epidermis, the dermis, you have a hypodermis, you have a smas, and you have orbicularis muscle. That's your lip when you're looking at the philtrum, this part. Epidermis and dermis is like nothing. It's it's a couple millimeters, two millimeters or so. It's nothing. Hypodermis can be two millimeters or one. It just depends if they have a fatty layer in there or not. And then there's smas. Smas is most of it. That's like four millimeters, three millimeters. So that's most of your volume in the upper lip. And orbicularis is orbicularis. So um, that part of the aging population tends to thin in the SMAS faster than other ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So um, people, doctors and injectors have to understand that some of our rejuvenation has to come with refilling the SMAS in people who have become deflated. Now, the analog to this in the um, the, the, the analogous uh, portion of this in the vermilion down here is called the lamina propria. The lamina propria is the same exact thing as the SMAS. And that's your hydratory layer. So this is where all your hyaluronic acid is, naturally. So this is your wet layer, spongy layer. So that layer also tends to shrink over time. And that's why your sulci laborum or your little fingerprints of the lip tend to get deeper and more shriveled over time. Uh, the other thing that happens is the muscle starts to thin, function gets a little worse, and the lip starts to lengthen. Now, there's research studies done showing it grows 0.1 millimeter or 1 millimeter a month or a year. There's, it's all over the place. Okay, and it's all over the place because I don't know how everybody's going to age. It doesn't, you know, matter. You can't say everyone, uh, the whole population is going to uh, grow on average of one millimeter a year. It has nothing to do with the individual patient. So those numbers aren't really important. It's just important to know that some people might lengthen over time. What exaggerates this is the other thing, which is the position relative to the teeth. If the lip skin height doesn't match the lip muscle height, doesn't match the tooth and gum position, you're going to have accelerated aging. You're going to have exaggerations and contracture. You're going to get sometimes gummy smile if the jaw, upper jaw is low and forward. And if it's too far back, elongation faster because it doesn't have any support. Uh, so you really have to look at the dentition and the bony skeleton versus the soft tissue skeleton. And the other part of aging that we have to consider now is what about people that are overfilled? Because when they're overfilled, we have hyaluronic acid filler that's in the lamina propria initially. And if you overfill it in this high pressure system, every time you smile, it pushes against the teeth and the lamina propria, as I said, is the same thing at the smash. So it just starts squirting upwards slowly mm. over time. It's not a capillary action necessarily, but it's the force of the orbicularis pushing against the teeth squeezing it upwards because it can't go downward so easily. So it starts to migrate. Now you have filler around the muscle and the muscle, the muscle is very sensitive. Okay. It's uh, the muscle doesn't like to be wet. It doesn't like to be dry. It likes to be somewhere in the middle. So it likes to have like a nice cushy smash on top of it. It likes to match the tooth tight and then it 
functions really, really well. The orbicularis is not a smart muscle. It's one of the dumb muscles. Okay, the levators are smart muscles. This is like a dumb muscle. It just squeezes. So if you overhydrate it, it doesn't flex. If you desiccate it, it hyperflexes. So let's say somebody, their smash drinks over time or you dissolve them and they had all this filler in there and it collapses and I have a deflated smash, that lip is going to hyperflex now. So overfilling exaggerates aging pretty rapidly in terms of lengthening. Deflation makes wrinkles and everything look worse because you contract so hard and you have no cushion to uh, really resist the skin folding in. So, so that's how I look at it over time. And then I, I, I look at each particular patient. I say, is this somebody I care to mess with? Okay, do I want to just mess with them a little and maybe give them just a little hydration in the lip, maybe a little accent? You know, filler is not meant to make big changes. It's meant to make you know, little, little small changes, nice touches here and there. That's what filler is for. Um, and that's when I do uh, the, the filler. Now, if I see somebody is too long, they're not getting to where they want to be. They don't have enough tooth show. There's so many factors. Or they just look angry because they have a, a harsh character to their lip. I say, you know what? Let's do a lip lift instead. And then I ask, is it practical for you? Do you have the healing time to really go through this? And if you do, I'm going to give you a different kind of result. Not a better result than filler. It's a different thing. I'm not talking about volumization. I'm talking about changing the shape, changing the character, giving you more tooth show, getting some aversion, different thing. And in some patients who are just not candidates for filler, I say, let me lip lift you the tiniest bit, and then you'll become a candidate for filler. Because some people have that vermilion that just juts forward. You can't fill them much. They just drop down or come out like a duck. So I do a lip lift. Now they're everted. Now you can open up the wall with a little bit of filler. So sorry if it's a long-winded no, that's answer. But that's my thought process, though, when I'm looking at people with aging and filling and all that. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, you mentioned that obviously different ethnicities um, are appropriate for different treatments and they age differently. Is that purely to do with their response to... Uh, damage from sun exposure or are there things happening differently just on it from i guess genetically irrespective of sun damage it's causing the face to, to age differently so so it's mainly genetic and um if you've heard the saying black don't crack asian don't raisin um there are certain ethnicities that have denser tissue characteristics and the fat layers the mass layer which is very important and the other reticular layers that pass through the fat, uh, they, they remain fuller over time and they don't sag as much over time because they have more stronger connective tissues. So, so that's largely true for um, olive tone to darker skin tone population, not true for everybody. In the lighter population, when you get like light white Irish skin, they tend to lose a lot of facial fat faster uh, they are more sensitive to skin damage, which causes more of the pigmentation. And their smash deflates a little bit more, which is sort of where you lose that radiance in the skin or that hydratory appearance of the skin. And when you don't have a hydrated smash in the face or it starts to shrink, the light doesn't reflect the same out of your face. So um, people don't fully understand where color of the skin comes from. We think it's all pigment. It's not all pigment. You can have a white person with rosacea and they look red. You have a white person with rosacea and pigment and they look brown. And you have somebody who's been dehydrated by dissolver and they look dark and they don't have radiance. You have someone who has a ton of filler in their face and they look white and they have this crystal glow to them. So the color of the skin comes from light hitting that epidermis, going through the dermis, 
okay, we have longer wavelengths, right? So they go through the dermis, they hit the fat layer, the smass layer, and then it reflects back out. And all of those contribute to the color of the face. In those lighter skin populations, you get, you're more sensitive to all that reflection. So you end up seeing the deflation under the skin visibly as loss of radiance in the skin, loss of that bright skin tone, which is why the lighter skin people are always chasing things with laser in addition to trying to fix the sun damage. So it's very complicated. And it's like looking at the lip, like the color of the lip is not pigment. The red in the lip is not pigment. You have mucosa, which doesn't have much color, which is filled with a blood supply. And that blood supply could be red or it could be blue, right? If you hold your breath. So your lip could be red, it could be blue. It just depends on if it's oxygenated or not. Then it goes through the lamina propria, which is another layer that's a jelly layer that is sometimes a little yellowish on some people, but mostly red and uh, clear. And then you have the muscle, the orbicularis muscle. So the light passing through there, passing back to your eye is what creates the, the color of the red lip. So uh, if you overfill someone, they look white. If they're dehydrated, they look darker. You know, And then you'll see that on some people where their color just isn't there. And you put a dot of filler in, magically they look rosy again you know so um again long-winded answer <laughs> oh, thank you great I, I wanted to pick you up you've mentioned the the smash layer several times in, in some of your answers now and i remember there was a, a post you did quite a while ago and one of my colleagues jillian pointed it out to me because you mentioned that the hyalonidase can i think you said the words dissolve some of the smash and it left one of your patients with a little crease above their lip now that was a bit yeah. controversial, not not because it's, you know, controversial, but like, I don't know what the evidence for it was. So when you've done your facelifts or, yeah. or, or you've done surgeries, do you actually see thinning of, of that smash layer or, or, or is that just your interpretation of it? Yeah, no, uh, it, it's, it's a repeated observation. And so it's over like several thousand, uh, if you combine facelifts and lip lifts and me looking at the smash, let's say like 5,000 of them. Yeah. Okay. And um, after seeing 5,000, you start to see the natural changes that occur in different people, different ethnicities, different face types, different densities, hyperelastic people, overfilled people. And, and uh, you start to see a pattern. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you see things from heat damage that occur, whether it's Altera or other kinds of radio frequency, and then Dissolver. And Dissolver has its own kind of changes that you see. Uh, and nobody fully understands what the dissolver is doing, but I'll tell you that the logic that people use is very incorrect. So the logic they use uh, for understanding dissolver is someone told them at some point that if you put a hyaluronidase into the skin or wherever of somebody, it's naturally going to make more hyaluronic acid within three hours. Okay. So, so that's not reality. Um, and we, we, most of us would know that's not reality. You know, nobody argues the three hour thing. Like you, you, you dissolve somebody, they'll dehydrate pretty exaggerated for the first couple of days. And it takes them about two weeks to rehydrate. Yeah. And most injectors kind of see that pattern. Um, what they're not noticing is the depressions that form afterwards or the darkening in the skin in certain areas. And once people hang out with me for a couple of days, I show it to them because it's pretty common. I say, you know, push on the teeth here. And you'll see it's deflated. They're missing some of that smash. And that's not during surgery. That's just somebody that comes in the office and I show it to them and they say, oh my God, you're right. And I say, watch this. I put a dot of filler back in it, uh, fills it back up and the color starts to reflect appropriately again. Now, why does this happen in some people and stay for 10 years, whereas in other people it doesn't? Uh, that I don't know. My, my guess is that 
Um, most people who get dissolved are already damaged. So they have microcystic expansion of the layers under the skin. And if you look under the skin where most filler sits for lip, let's say, because that's easy, uh, lip filler, when it migrates, sits in the SMATS. That's where it is because it was in the lamina propria and it travels in the same plane, which is SMATS. Um, you only see it in the dermis up here if somebody injected it directly into the dermis for wrinkles. So when you see lip filler up in the filtrum, it's almost always SMATS. And if it's Juvederm, for example, it'll go one uh, one centimeter. It can go about 10 millimeters. And I try to tell people, Juvederm is not the worst filler. Not all Juvederm migrates, but all migrated filler is Juvederm. So you understand <laughs> that? Like, so uh, th th that's how. So you can do Juvederm and not have it migrate. But I'll tell you, all migrated filler, which is a centimeter above, is Juvederm. And it has a hydrophilic potential and it has that glare that makes it white. So with those people who have specifically these fillers that sit in the SMATs, it causes a microcystic expansion of the SMATs. So the SMATs that used to be three millimeters becomes five millimeters. And it sits like that for a year. And a year is enough to damage that tissue. And now you're dissolving somebody who already has damaged tissue. It collapses, but it goes to two millimeters. It never comes back to the natural three. I don't know why it doesn't recover, but it doesn't recover. And uh, as far as like your examination, you notice that because you can feel it and you can feel the teeth right through it. It's pretty depressed or it looks dark. They look like they have a mustache line. If you do a surgery, it's a whole different thing. So I open up a lip lift and I showed a surgeon yesterday who came in and I was operating on his wife. And I showed him or I asked him during the surgery, I said, um, it looks like she's been dissolved at some point in the central third of her lip, but not the lateral parts. And he said, yeah, but I did it three years ago. And you can see it. It's not, I'm not guessing, you know, I've seen it thousands of times. And so you go in there and it's not just the look of it, but what it is, is the smash is deflated to something like two millimeters rather than the healthier part that you usually see. And it's darker. It's darker because it has no hydratory potential. It doesn't carry water anymore. And the dissection is also different. You no longer have this loose areolar greasy feeling. It's a dry, matted feeling versus the side of the lip looked totally healthy. And I showed him the smash and I said, look, it's glistening. That's a healthy smash. And I put my scissor in it and went, boom, spreads like no problem. So these are the tissue characteristics that I see visibly repeated. I've seen it 3,000 times in a lip. I've seen it a couple thousand times in a face. So, so I recognize it. Now, I've never gone through things to prove why it happens, how it happens. That's not really my concern. You know, I'm not like the scientist, but I've seen it so many times. And um, the, the controversial part of it would be, why is it happening? Why does it happen to some people and not others? It's not that it's actually happening. People who argue that it happens or not, they haven't seen it. You know, I, they come visit me one day, I'll show it to them in one day and they get it. You know, most people haven't seen it. So the people who argue it really just don't see the issues that I'm talking about. Um, but they're, they're pretty common and they're more common in places in the face that carry uh, more water. So uh, if you look in the under eye, for example, there's no mass layer um, in the under eye. So if you look at the mid face, there's thick mass, thick sets, thick mass, zygomatic arch, it tapers off to nothing under eye tapers off to nothing. There's no real smash layer there. So you could dissolve the under eye all day, every day. Just keep doing dissolver, dissolver, dissolver. Um, the only thing you really see is an exaggerated dehydration in the first like week, and then it rehydrates. Maybe the skin looks a little wrinkled because it was expanded for so long, but you don't see a big problem with it. Mm. The places that have thicker smash, like the mid face and the lip, you see a visible depression because there's a thick smash layer. It's your hydratory layer. And if that person doesn't rebound, they lose their hydratory capacity. 
And so they can't rehydrate and your body forgets about it for some reason. I don't know why it forget it forgets about it. And it stays dehydrated, a little depressed. You can feel it and they look dark. And I've seen people who had it 10 years ago. And I say, you got dissolved. And they say, no, I didn't. I say, you got dissolved. And they say, oh, well, like 10 years ago. And I say, look at that depression. And I put a dot of filler in it. It immediately goes back. And interestingly, you don't even put much filler. You like touch it with filler and the body just starts to rehydrate it. It's, it's a pretty interesting phenomenon, which I don't fully understand. Interesting. Now, as someone who likes Juvederm fillers, I'm going to challenge you <laughs> on what you said. So are you saying that only Juvederm migrates or are you saying that it just happens that those people that you've treated were Juvederm? So, so it disproportionately migrates. So, so Juvederm, if you were to put in a vial of uh, water, it'll carry six times its weight in water mm -hmm. versus Volbella or Voluma carry almost nothing. So it has a different character to it. Um, now, when somebody does Juvederm tastefully and they put it just in the dry vermilion, they don't hit the wet, they don't hit the vermilion border, it's not migrating. Yes. Okay, it's not going anywhere. It stays there. And in fact, Dr. Harris, Steve Harris, too, in London, he like loves Juvederm. Yes. Um, but he's very skilled and you're skilled. Most people aren't that skilled, so they end up doing too much. Now, let's say you do too much Juvederm or in the wrong place versus wrestling. Okay, Restylane or Volbella or Volure tend to spread and then stop. So maybe they go like two millimeters or so. Juvederm has the capacity to go 10 millimeters. And so that's a very different character than all the other fillers have, um, which is why I say not all Juvederm migrates, but 100% of migrated filler that you'd see a centimeter. I'm not talking about two millimeters, the glare. I'm talking about one centimeter. That is Juvederm. The only other thing that does that, and it's a different way, is silicone. And silicone doesn't necessarily migrate. It's more of an oily substance that permeates. And silicone is a different look. It can migrate or cause fullness two centimeters away, which is much more. And then it can cause a different color because it forms a yellowish scar bed. So the coloration of Juvederm when it makes it into the upper lip is white. The coloration of silicone is more like a fat graft, like they kind of look similar where there's a little yellowish discoloration to it. So it's a little bit different, but, but that, that, that's the observation that I've seen. And um, it may be because Juvederm is the most popular filler and people just kind of overdo it in too much volume. But if you compare it to the other ones, it does have a tendency to cause a little bit more of that white glare because the water it draws in. Interesting. I mean, so Volbella is Juvederm. It's part of the Juvederm family. But um, I think what you're saying is if you inject in the closed system of the lip and you're, you know, you're meticulous about your technique, you can use any filler and it should stay there. It's just poor injecting that creates the, Absolutely. the, the migration, uh, as we call it. Mm. Um Fair enough. Anyway, Absolutely. Well, I was yeah. just, I mean, I, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a fairly general question in terms of when you're assessing a patient for a lip treatment, what's your mental process that you go through in terms of what you're looking for, what product you're going to use, you know, what limitations, you know, at what point do you think this is a limitation and maybe surgical intervention is required? I guess a lot of people will be wondering, you know, what is the yeah. Dr. Bentali approach to lip assessment and treatment? Yeah, so... I, I like to look at the whole mouth um, when I'm looking at somebody, meaning I'm looking at the philtrum, I'm looking at the upper vermilion, lower vermilion, and then the depressors. Um, the depressors are very important uh, in general because it's a dead giveaway as to somebody having like a skeletal issue. So if you see somebody's contracting and they have, so have this depression and they have pulled around the orange peel, I just immediately look at their teeth and how they close their mouth. And I start to see that 
There's a large part of the population who naturally either has teeth that are very prominent and their upper lip can't come down. So their lower lip is always working over time. And there's a large percentage of the LA population that had nasty ass big veneer. And so, uh, that's the first thing. <laughs> that's the technical at. term. Um, yeah. And, and that's just, yeah. So, so that's very common. So there's dentists running around causing depressor hyperfunction and polar orange. Uh, the, the orange peel of the skin and the, the dentists are causing this. Now it's not the really tasteful ones. It's obviously just in plastic surgery. We have the non-tasteful ones. So uh, that's what I look at first. And then I see, uh, is this somebody where I have to treat the wrinkles uh, in this mass? Are they hyperdynamic? What's going on there? That's the first thing I look at. If they are hyperdynamic, I say, is it a deflated smas? And I know because it looks dark, not from dissolver necessarily, just from life. Or is it somebody who's just has decent volume, but they're just hyperfunction, right? So if it's just hyperfunctioning, I just put a dot of uh, Botox in there, a disport, maybe two units on each side maximum. Uh, if it looks like it's a deflated smas, and this is again in your like Irish population, then I'm going to actually put a dot of filler in there. Now, that's the important part where you can only use certain fillers. So, so there, that is where you can't use Jupiter. That's where you can't use Voluma. That's where you can't use perlane or restylane lift uh you can only use certain fillers up in the filtrum without causing a problem and i'm talking about the smas injection not the wrinkles necessarily and it's really cool because when some people kiss you just see they form these lines that just pull in on each other if they had this much more volume in their smas that goes away and it stops folding in so sometimes i just put a daughter wrestling kiss or Versa or whatever I want to use. Um, and then I go down to the vermilion and I say, you know what, let me just add a little bit of volume in their body to bring it out. Let me put some in the depressors. Let me put some Botox. If I see that I can do small amounts on this person and get a big change, I say fantastic. And I tell them to maintain it as needed. I'm not someone who says come back every six months. I try to get patients to do maybe Botox every like four to six months because it definitely goes away. But filler, I say, let it go to the point where it bothers you and then do it again. That mm -hmm. way you're never worried about like dissolving somebody. You don't have to reset. You know, you just slowly kind of re-add as needed. Not everybody dissolves it all out. Some people keep 50%. Some people keep 90%. Some people keep 10 you know. Um, if it gets to the point where I can't make a, the change that I want on them or that just I'm not seeing any teeth, that's where I'm just jumping to a lip lift. If you can't see teeth, you're not very sexy like you have to show teeth to be sexy sexy and sensual you have to show teeth to be young and one of my dental friends kyle stanley even showed me he goes watch disney movies all the disney movies they they, they figured this out and for all the people they want to make look old and evil you can't see their teeth they just got a long filter <laughs> yeah. the young tiny babies and sexy they're all showing teeth and this is part of what makes people look old and then even disney knows about this <laughs> so we should know about it and for, for those patients, I look at it and see how comfortable they're closing their mouth and this and that. And some people, I say, you know what, if you want more, I'd say more uh, bigger improvement, then we're going to send you to do a lip lift. Now, in my practice, I don't have to recommend a lip lift. People come to me for it, which is great. I hate telling someone who came in for an injection that they need a surgery. It's not fun. You know, you don't want to give them a complex. You don't want to, you know, make them think they're not beautiful. <laughs> so. It's, it's a dicey area. So it's really nice when they come to me um, already knowing about it. Or they went to another injector and the injector said, hey, I've taken you as far as you're going to go. If you want to do something more, it's out of my hands for the next couple of years because that filler you got is going to last a couple of years. If you want more than that, go to this guy. Yeah. So 
it's kind of easy for me to jump into surgery because the people who come to me are already kind of ready for it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, briefly two products. You said uh, Restylane Kiss and Versailles or Versa. Versa. So can you just, Versa, uh, are those, are those yeah. your two go-to products or what, what else are you using primarily in your practice for lips? Um, I just use, I, I mainly use Restylane Kiss. Sometimes I use Versa. Um, if I'm traveling, I use the, uh, the Tioxane products. Um, I've, I've, I've used Volbella, Volour. You know, they're pretty nicely reactive in the lip. Um, I, I like all those. I, I don't like the thicker ones in the lip, and I've moved away from some of the we call them beaded. I call them beaded fillers, meaning the old kind of restylane. Um, just because with the newer ones that are that kind of linear stranding or the Nasha technology or high cross technology, it goes in a little bit smoother without clumping, and so you don't have to massage it. The, le- the less you massage the lip the less inflammatory the injection is, the less swelling they have, and the less chance you have of accidentally actually pushing it somewhere above. So um, I, I like to you know, try not to massage the lips so much. That's why I use the, those smoother ones. The downside to them in the other places of the face, like the under eye, would be the classic Restylane and classic Juvederm are so easy to dissolve. You just put in like a dotted dissolver, even super dilute dissolver and it just goes it just breaks apart because of the cross-linking the, the hyaluronidase can penetrate with the high cross and all those um the, the nasha stuff uh they tend to stick around a little bit longer in the other areas and when you try to dissolve them they're a little stubborn um, but in the lip it, it doesn't really matter so much for any listeners who are maybe sort of starting their journey, I think you were saying that you often treat the SMAS layer itself. And yet we do know that that is slightly more dangerous where the blood vessels tend to live. So just be careful if you're a new injector and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to inject this guy's or, or lady's SMAS. Just be careful that there are dangerous blood vessels the deeper you go. And traditionally we treat, yes. we do more of a submucosal plane when we're doing a, a standard lip filler. Um, so yeah, I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I try to show people to get into that. Um, it's that, that loose feeling. So as soon as you, let's say in the vermilion, as soon as you pierce through the mucosa and you go parallel, immediately you're going to be in the lamina propria and that's the appropriate place to fill. And it's vascular, but not large caliber vessels. Large yeah. caliber vessels are going to be on right on, right on top of the orbicularis. So people don't get how superficial it is. It's right on top of the orbicularis muscle. When you get up into the philtrum, um, the same feeling, you have to get right under through the dermis and you're in the smas immediately. And so you just have to be very, very cautious not to go deeper. If you go deeper in the filtering, uh, people have very commonly injected up here the inferior alar artery and uh, other parts of uh, the, the branches that go vertically in the lip. The vertical ones aren't so important. The inferior alar artery, I've seen injected a bunch of times from uh, just when I'm doing a lip lift, I'll see actually filler, like looks like encased in a sausage. Uh, but it has such a good recurrent blood supply, you don't see the problem. Mm. If somebody injects it laterally here, nasolabial fold, that's the really like the worst part. So if you hit nasolabial, like the angular or the labial artery as it comes up, or you hit labial coming across, those are the two really, really bad spots. And um, it means you touch the muscle because it's on the superficial layer of the muscle. 
Absolutely. Now, if we could pivot to the surgical side, maybe just give us a bit of history because I have to admit, you know, I've done lots of surgery, even some cosmetic surgery, and I never really came across lip lifts at all. Did lots of breast and lipo and other things, but lips or or lip lift seems to be a relatively new trendy thing, but I gather it's got an older history that that wasn't great, which is why it went out of fashion. So maybe you could just sort of give us the the two minute history. Yeah, sure. So, so, Back to 1973 would be when there were international congresses, and one of them, uh, there's two doctors, Cardoso and Spurley. They, they were the first ones really talking about a sub-nasal lip lift. So lip lifts can be performed any way that you lift the lip. It could be a vermilion direct lift. It could be uh, one of the weird kind of duck, double duck. There's a bunch of different ways. Corner lift. These are all lip lifts. Now, the one that we're talking about is a subnasal lip lift. The mm-hmm. first time the subnasal, which means from under the nose, was performed was or talked about was Cardoso and Spurley. The first publication came in like 1980, though, um, but 1973. Um, it never got popular because they couldn't figure out how to keep it from scarring on all skin types. So mm-hmm. um, even uh, Stephen Hofflin, who is a big famous kind of surgeon in Beverly Hills, came, came, came by my office one day and uh, this is years ago when I started doing it. And he said, he goes, look, this is my paper from like 1976. I was talking about it back then. We just couldn't fully figure out how to do it. We were just doing it on older patients. He goes, but you figured it out. You figured it out. And the problem was nobody could figure out how to keep it from scarring. So rather than fix the problem, which was tension, they actually went and tried to hide it everywhere. Hide mm. the scars inside, do this, that, all this crazy stuff. Just like they do with facelifts. You know, instead of just fixing the tension like a deep plane does, they would just make incisions inside the hairline, inside the hairline, and they try to hide the high tension. Um, so I, I, I took the same uh, ideology from deep plane facelifting, which was releasing that smash layer off of the deeper layers, rolling it over, putting it back down. I started doing it in the lift. Um, without really realizing that there was the same exact layer with almost the same thickness of smash in the lip. I didn't get it. It took me a long time. And at some point I went dissected too much, came back too much healing time. So now I got to this like magic point where I could do a deep plane lip lift and do it on 20 year olds, 70 year olds, 50 year olds, didn't matter. And that's what made it popular. So I didn't know that, but over in Poland, they were talking about, Hey, there's a guy in Beverly Hills who's doing it on 25 year olds, getting good results in Brazil. There was some guy saying, Hey, there's a guy in LA doing it. I didn't know any of this. Um, so I try to teach people. I teach people, you know, as I figured it out, then I started figuring out the anatomy. I didn't know the anatomy. I figured it out. I'm like, shit, what is this? I'm stitching to. I go look it up. <laughs> oh, piriform ligament. I look at this. I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, Oh shit. You know what? This is the smash. Then I'm like, where's the fat layer? I'm like, Oh shit. The, the lip doesn't really have a big fat layer. It's a little tiny bit of fat cells in the hypodermis. So, you know, this is why we don't fat graft the lips so much or shouldn't. Um, but you can just, complicated so either way I, I started to realize all these things and i would teach people and i taught uh warwick nettle from australia oh, yeah. and i would teach you know this guy from here and there and and some of the people i taught would get it like warwick and then some people i would teach wouldn't get it and um i would do the revisions and i'd go dissect and i'd say oh, shit they didn't even listen to me at all and so i tried to come up with a way that i could reproduce it and I thought, you know what? Doctors are not artistic. Doctors are not that insightful as we think. You know, we're smart people, but we're rigid. So I'm like, how can I make something rigid that's reproducible so I can contribute to humanity? <laughs> so I start, <laughs> uh, you know, like, let me do some measurements. So I start measuring my lip lifts, the residuals. And I think, and this is like, you know, verbatim, I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, the whole time I've been designing this slope and I didn't even know it. Once I had the numbers in front of me, I saw it. 
Uh, but I was eyeballing it because I can eyeball to about half a millimeter because I've done so many. So I was eyeballing it to about half a millimeter. And I made this thing called a cupid lip, which means I have these relaxed skin tension lines and I named them center, peak, intermediate, diagonal. And I started, uh, I made an equation. So you can make this equation now on how to shape the lip and I can keep a slope shape. I figured out angry looks, happy looks, all these different things that I kind of put into how to make like a pleasant looking lip and who you can lift and who you can't lift. So I came up with the first real contraindications. Nobody has good contraindications. I came up with some real ones. Um, and then I started using the corner lift. And when I figured this part out, this is where I might again, contribute to humanity. So my <laughs> publication that's coming out uh, in aesthetic surgery journal, there's just one line and there are two lines that talks about subfacial lip versus the subnasal lip. And this is really cool because it'll help everybody. So there's a diagonal relaxed skin tension line. So if you look at the mouth, it goes like this. Relaxed skin tension lines go out radially up to your nasal labial folds and they come around like this. So I call that the relaxed skin tension line globe. When you look at somebody, it looks like a globe, like with all the uh, you know axes. Yeah. So I figured out that the diagonal line is the most important because the diagonal line determines what the subnasal lip lift can lift. It's between those two diagonal lines. Everything lateral to that is hanging from the face. That's your subfacial lip. Then I look closer and say, shit, there's a muscular disparity there because you have levators coming in. So it acts a little different. Then I look closer and I said, oh my God, this is exactly where the transition happens from the vermilion roll that we all know about to no vermilion roll. So you remember like here we have that nice white vermilion roll. Laterally, you don't have one. It's at the diagonal line that it transitions. And that's where most people would have their lip dropping off. So you have a nice, beautiful lip. And if somebody has a narrow nose and a wide lip, that lateral lip is gone. Mm -hmm. You don't even see it. And this is in the injection world where nobody can get that to lift, right? Like how many times do people come in, just get this lifted, just get this lifted. <laughs> but they got a narrow nose, a wide mouth. You can't lift that. And that's where we get stuck. And you need a corner lift surgically to actually lift that, which is an easy procedure. So that's what I think is cool about the cupid lift is just understanding that it helps understand the anatomy. You start to look at people differently. Say, you know what? This person has a wide nose and the lip matches the nose width. So their whole lip is up. And now I can inject them pretty easily. This person has a narrow nose. It's long and they have a wide mouth. Hardest person to inject, right? Because it's just going to come right in the middle, start ducking out and the sides hang. So yeah. Um, the, the, the anatomy is something where I just figured it out as I was trying to teach people. Um, that was, yeah, your explanations are so thorough. That's fantastic. Um, for injectors that are listening out there that may be just looking for something, you know, a little more distilled in terms of what, what point do they put their hands up and say, I can't achieve the outcome that you're wanting. This is something that's going to require surgical intervention, the lip lift. What, what are those indicators where you, where they would make that decision to send someone to, to, you know, to a surgeon such as yourself. Sure. Well, you know, I, I say always look at somebody from the, just, you know, make it the front and the side and you have to look, let's say just for lips or for focusing on lips. Uh, only place you can really inject is within the dry vermilion. You can't touch the wet dry border on most people. You're not touching the vermilion border. Some people you are because they're deflated there. Most people you're not. So you really only have like this little space to inject coming across. So think about your limitations and look at that patient and imagine from the side, if I injected them right there, would they still look good? Would they look better or would they look worse if I start injecting because they duck out because they're too flat up here? So look at the limitations from that standpoint. You have to imagine how it's going to be. Now, people who aren't good at imagining, 
They're not good at this. People who are dysmorphic, which a lot of doctors are dysmorphic, aren't good at this. They don't know what looks bad or good. They just make everybody look bad and they look bad. And, Agree. Um, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if somebody has like really long upper lip, you can't see their teeth, uh, be cautious. You know, you don't want to do too much. And at that point, you could say, okay, I see this is too long. Now, there's no number that I tell injectors to look for. There's no 11 millimeter lip, 13 millimeter lip, 15. That's correct. Whatever looks good. You know, if somebody has a 30 millimeter chin, you're not going to put a 10 millimeter lip. It doesn't look good. Like you just got to look at the person and say, is it going to be nice? Now, the lip under 11 millimeters, 10 millimeters doesn't function well because there's not enough muscle flexion anyways. But uh, so, so I, it's, it's hard to fully give people the idea of what to do. But if you see they have no tooth show, they're just flat, they're long. Filler is not going to get them very far and they want to go far. That's somebody that you send for surgery. The We're opening this clinic now that's going to be called Cupid Lips based on the Cupid Lip. And the whole idea of this place is that, the, well, the front of the store is going to be all like Sephora, but for lips. So we're doing this lip product, but the back is going to be doing the, the Cupid Lift and then doing injections for lips only. The cool thing about this is upstairs, I made this procedure room that's like a procedure theater. And we're going to be kind of a pop-up for surgeons. Like, let's say you come and visit. I say, please come visit us. Let's record you doing an injection or a teaching session on a patient or whatever. And we videotape this. And I'm making the room specifically for this. And what we're going to do is we're going to put this stuff online in what we call the Cupid Compendium. You got to keep it catchy, right? (laughs) It's a Cupid Compendium. And the Cupid Compendium will be a video library of people performing surgeries around the mouth, people performing lasers around the mouth, nanofat PRP, and injections by different people. So it's not just me saying I'm right. You know, we have different people with different aesthetic, different tastes. And we put this all in a compendium so injectors can watch this and start to develop an idea of anatomy, an idea of limitations, an idea of different aesthetics and tastes and, you know, things that go wrong. Because injectors, when they start, they're very lost. And most of them are not well-trained when they start. They just become nurses and they go work for somebody who wants to make money. And the guy who owns it is like, okay, go start injecting, make money. We'll advertise them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I just so, tapped David on the shoulder wait, for that, people who can't see what I just did. Yeah. No, I'm joking. David's a very good boss. I've worked for him previously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the idea though, is to have somebody for those. Because I'm sure you've talked to like tons of injectors who start, they're dying to come and learn. And they're like, where do I go? What book do I buy? Yeah. And they go to some like jackasses symposium somewhere who's like teaching things that make no sense. And that's <laughs> a, I want to make it where we have the top people on video showing their injection technique off label. Okay. This isn't, we're not getting sponsored by anybody. We're putting it there. Yeah. And so that way everyone can like learn the real techniques. That's awesome. Right. Well, if I can get an injecting license in California, I'd love to come. So <laughs> thanks for the no, invite. We're doing this like, <laughs> no, we're doing this like a uh, third world Mexico style. We're just doing it. <laughs> we're, like, we're not going to say where it was filmed. It wasn't. Filmed uh-huh, in LA, yes. so, don't worry. so we can do stem cells as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 We don't know where it was filmed. Yeah. What about the, the actual procedure? So it, I gather you can either do it under local or sort of semi-twilight uh, sort of procedure. So tell us about, yeah. you know, how long it lasts and, and what prep does the patient need to, to do before the day? 95 to 99% of patients do it under local. We're doing just the lip lift. Obviously, during the facelift, we use twilight. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're doing just the lip lift, 90 plus percent are doing it under local. 
there's a couple people who I can just sense. I'm like, you know, during the consult, I'm like, oh, you're already starting to bug me. I'm like, you're going to spaz out. I'm like, we're not in the mood for this. <laughs> we're going to put you to sleep, make my life better and make your life better. And they know that. And I, I say, you know, I recommend sedation. But most people, let's say we're doing a regular one. Um, I have them come in anytime. They can eat before. It doesn't matter. We give them a little bit of Valium. So we ask them not to drive. Uh, the cool thing about Valium is it mellows you out, relaxes your nerves. So when this happens, your panic response is much lower. If you have an anxious response during a surgery, your blood gets thinner. So uh, people always think it's because of blood pressure people are bleeding. It's not. You can actually have thinner blood that doesn't clot. And it has to do something with tissue uh, TPA. So tissue plasminogen activator gets uh, blocked or something when you get have a panic response. That's why anxious people bleed so much. Um Redheads, different reason. So uh, redheads are just angry sometimes. So either <laughs> way, with, uh, with these patients, we always give them some Valium and it mellows them out. And I have them take oral tranexamic acid, oral TXA. I don't know the science of it. I do know the science of it. I don't know if it's evidence-based, whether it works or not. I've been using it for like five years. I, I don't know if it works fully or not. I feel like it does. So um, I give it to patients like a pill the day before, a pill the morning up. And then I numb them with local anesthetic, which means I get a little bit of lidocaine, bupivacaine, I do dental blocks. Mm -hmm. uh, from there, then I come down and hit the commissure, which is the buccal branch. And then I come from here and go across to the uh, greater palatine, so the incisive canal. And that numbs up your whole upper lip. And then I do two mesin because you got to inject into the SMAS or the dermis to, to have it not bleed. I always wait 20 minutes. I tell them your heart rate's going to be up. Because of the epinephrine, do not worry about it. It means you're alive. So be happy if your heart rate goes up. <laughs> so they feel jittery. Their heart rate's up for about 10, 15 minutes. At 20 minutes, we do the surgery, covering their eyes so the light's not hitting them. Surgery takes anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. The reason for the disparity in time is some people just get a subnasal lip lift. Some people get a muscle suspension, a whole other science I've created. So there's like orbicularis suspension. Uh, there's nasal base suspension. And there is a corner lifting. So I combine these things sometimes. And let's say it takes an hour if I do all of them. Yeah. Afterwards, they look ridiculous. So I tell them, listen, you're going to have stitches in for five days. We take half the stitches out of day three, half of them out of day five. There's a high propensity for hypopigmentation here from stitches. So we got to take them out fast. Mm -hmm. The first week, your lip is huge. The second week, your lip is halfway huge. The third week, it goes to somewhat normal size, actually but it becomes thick, stiff, and awkward. And remember, this is with a deep plane lip lift, not a regular lip lift. It's because you freak out the lymphatics. By two months, your lip is almost back to normal. It's kind of stiff still. Your nose looks a little bit wide. Don't worry about it. Three months, you're all the way back to normal and you look fantastic and your smile is big, but you're only 20% healed. But if you were to stand in front of your twin sister, your twin sister would have no idea you did anything. You're 20% healed. You keep healing for over the course of a year and beyond a year. What happens between three months and a year is you'll have bits of stiffness that you feel, some numbness if you were to touch way up here, and that's normal. I see you at six weeks. You come back in. We do a laser on your incisions. I see you at three months. We do another laser on your incisions. 90% of the patients don't need anything ever again. They're good to go. 10% of patients, they got to see me one more time. 10 more times. It really just depends because I got to keep going until I get your incision barely visible. This may include five FU injections. It may include uh, laser, repeat lasers. And in a lot of patients who have prior filler, it involves refilling. So when people have been filled for a long time and you deflate them with dissolver, you will likely have to refill them. 
And this is because their tissue is damaged and it will not retain water afterwards. So you have to forcibly do that by putting in some uh, filler after. So I wait three months and then any depressions or any kind of that dry look that they still have, I just refill it, boom, comes right back with a touch of filler. The other cool thing I've done is nanofat PRP. Mm. I've found that if you take nanofat, mix it with PRP, inject it into the SMAS, uh, whether it's the face or the lip, it has a very cool progenitor potential of actually regenerating the SMATs without filling it. So it doesn't actually add volume. It just reminds it to heal. I don't know what it does, but it works. It's really, really impressive. And I have some photos on my website that are pretty cool where someone had really deep wrinkles and you see that darkening from a deflated SMAS and I injected nanofat PRP, lasered it, and it's like, boom, it looks, it looks pretty cool. That's so that's that's my gist. I've repeated a thousand times. Yeah. So, <laughs> so for the people who've never seen this, am I right in saying that you you follow the contour of the the you know the the undernose? So it looks like a, a bull's horn or a, a gull wing. I don't know how you describe it. Um, but are you Correct. actually removing like a little moustache of tissue, or are you just making an incision exactly and doing? That. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly that. Um, and so you're removing some tissue. So you're removing a. Li- it looks like a mustache, like what you're removing. Yeah, guys, we'll, so we'll throw see. something up in our stories to show you what we're yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when you look at the lines, you can actually control how much one part comes up compared to the other, but it has diminishing effect as it goes up yeah. because it's an advancement flap in this direction. So anything that's directly under the nose gets a direct lip. Anything yes. out here, if you know the Pythagorean theorem, it's really vertically only getting that much lift, even though you lifted it diagonally that much. So as you go out, you get less of a lift, which is what makes this equation cool is it compensates for that. Yeah. So you can keep somebody really exposed and neutral as opposed to like centrally exaggerated, which is what, what most old, uh, older lip lifts would do. Is. Um, as an injector, obviously, sometimes people who are very flat here and obviously long, we, we would send them for a lip lift. But if they're not so long but flat, what do you think about using filler to recreate the filtral columns? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you can you can pump the filtrum a touch, and you can recreate columns a touch. And so um, you have to always ask the patient because I've created filtral columns in somebody who really was just blunted, um, and most people love it, but some people hate it because <laughs> yeah. they never had them. And yes. I didn't ask. I'm like, this is going to be beautiful. I'm an artist, and I fucking put them in, and they <laughs> hate it, and I felt like an idiot. <laughs> so um, I always ask them now. And when I do it, and it's a really cool thing to do if if they like that idea, because a lot of people say, you know, what? I used to have this peak and I had these columns, but they're gone now that I'm older. And I say, you know, what? I'm just going to put a touch back. And actually, in some people who really look flattened, it doesn't make them look lifted, but it doesn't make them look as long. If you know what I mean? Like, so they don't look as like flat and long anymore. So I, I, I used to really like doing that. Uh, and I do like the tiniest bit and I do a retrograde injection. So I kind of thread my needle in the same exact plane and then bring it out and inject at the same time, 0.1 cc's or less. I mean, sorry, 0.01 cc's. Yeah. The problem most people have is they don't control it properly and it goes this way or that way. And then they get widened and they look flat or they look asymmetric. So yeah. it, it's that's an advanced technique. Um, I'd say as far as like injections going, you really have to control it. 
Yeah, I agree. And if you choose the wrong filler, it sort of spreads and looks weird. Um, another little trick yep. if you're an injector is just a little drop at the GK point, which is the, the base of the filtral column. It just gives a little bit of shape yeah. to like a bit of light reflex shadow and it, it can look really nice as well. Yeah. Yeah. So what are yeah, the, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So what are the, I guess, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the complications of the procedure in terms of, you know, what things can go wrong. I mean, you, you've spoken about numbness yeah. and, and when things get back to normal. Um, but I guess every surgical procedure does come with risk or any procedure comes with risk. So what, what can potentially go wrong and then how serious is it? Is it something that's easily rectified, obviously under, yeah. under correct supervision and, and medical care? Sure. So, so everybody gets Valtrex, so Valcyclovir. The, the, so the risk of uh, shingles or outbreaks or stuff is, is pretty low, really, really low. The risk of infection is exceedingly low. If you use a deep plane, and you're really just not using any dermal sutures, which I don't use any dermal sutures, uh, the risk of spitting stitches is really low. But nobody listens and they put it too superficial and it spits stitches. And when you spit stitches at the base, you end up getting atrophy or hypertrophy. So that, 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 that's one of the risks is scarring. Nasal base widening is a risk. When I do it, um, it's really nominal. So I tell patients, if you were to look at five photos from all angles, four photos would look identical. As far as the nostrils go, one of them might have some little vague character change. You have to be okay with that. Now, if you do a lip lift poorly, it'll be like major nasal base widening, major nasal base ptosis, and the middle of the sill on people who don't have good structure, the middle of the sill actually turns into two little horseshoes. Mm. So, so all that can happen. But in my patients, I just tell them to expect the minimal because I'm I, I am very controlled at it. The risk that I tell patients otherwise is falls into that whole category of sometimes I need to see you one more time. Sometimes I need to see you 10 more times. Okay. And the high probability is that when I see you throughout these times, I will get the incision to where it's barely visible. My revision rate is much less than 1%. And that's insane. Okay. My revision rate for noses is like 5% for primaries, 10% for revisions. My revision rate for faces is 1%. Revision rate for upper eyelids is almost zero. Revision rate for lower eyelids is almost zero. Revision rate for lips is very, very low. It's a little less than 1%. Why do I do those revisions? I usually do those revisions because I missed something in terms of symmetry or something like that. It's not like bad scarring. So out of the 3,000 patients that I've done, I've had two of them or three of them, probably three of them that I've revised for bad scarring. Mm -hmm. And it's just could, for whatever reason it happens, you can't always control it, but I tell them it's possible. And I, I always explain to patients, listen, when you hear percentages in surgery and risk, realize that's my risk. It's not your risk. Your risk is zero to a hundred. Your risk is anything. I'm talking about my risk and what happens to me, not to you. So I tell patients, you can assume you're the one in a thousand or you're not, we don't know. Um, but, but those are really the, the, mm. the risks. Now, risks I've seen with other people doing it is usually scarring, nasal base widening. Disproportion is a big one because uh, it's a subnasal lip lift. So people tend to lift centrally and they look exaggerated. If you lift somebody who has angular depression, you're really going to just exaggerate it because you brought this up and relatively increased it compared to that and it ends up going down more. And then they can't close their mouth as well either. So they already have that because of poor mouth closure. And now it's up here. Now it has to travel all the way up. So it gets even worse. So th those are the main things that I see in other patients. Mm -hmm. The one that you can't fix is, uh, well, if someone over-resects, you can't really fix that so well. Another thing you can't fix is uh, when people put incisions inside the nose and it doesn't look good, it looks a little skeletonized, mm -hmm. you can never fix an excised sill. So if the sill is gone, it's gone. That's why I tell people this is a sub 
nasal lip lift, your excising lip, don't combine lip with nose. Don't put the lip skin inside the nose. It's weird. You know, mm. people don't get that. And most surgeons say like, oh, but I do it for years and I'm great at it. I have no scar, but I look at their results like it's total shit. You know, so it really <laughs> just depends like who's who's analyzing it, like who's seeing it, like how, you know, I got 20-20 vision. This guy's like 10 out of 20 vision. <laughs> yeah. Who thinks that? Um, so, so I advise against things that you can't fix in the, in the lip. Um, you know, and I always tell people with fat grafting, especially be really careful, you know, fat grafting. I do it. I do very, very small amounts. Um, but I do it, uh, but I know that it doesn't belong in the lip, you know, yeah. uh, somebody, I, I always say like, if somebody's injecting you who thinks it belongs in the lip, they shouldn't be injecting you <laughs> because <laughs> they're not careful. Like it doesn't belong in the lip. And if you're injecting somebody that doesn't belong there, you really got to be cautious. Fantastic. And I guess the one thing we didn't touch on is treating younger patients. Is that more for very inverted, uh, sorry, inverted or, or M-shaped lips? Is that the, the, the common reason younger patients come to you? So, so the most common reason for younger patients, there's two. One is they just naturally have elongated upper lips and poor tooth show. Mm-hmm. The other is they've been elongated by excess fillers. So those are the two most common. Right. The M-shaped lip is not as common uh, but the M-shaped lip is a tough one to, to get, but I love it because I figured out this way to do it. So the, the M-shaped lip is just for people who don't know, if we look at the lip vermilion, it comes up like an M. The inferior border or the internal arc of the lip at the wet dry border should be a smooth, straight border, like an arc. Um, some people have a dimple in the middle if they don't have a central tubercle naturally. Um, but some people have an M-shape where the inside also parallels it and it makes people look a little villainous, like a little thin villainous, kind of not a not a sexy look necessarily. And the M-shaped lip is notoriously difficult to fill because mm-hmm. you have a prominent central tubercle, you have a lack of vermilion here, and then you have vermilion show laterally. So it's very hard to fill and pop it out. And injectors try all day, and you can get a little bit of an improvement on it with injections for sure. But to get an improvement with a lip lift or during a lip lift, you can do your lip lift, you get more exposure. Then you do what we call VY plasties, paramedian VY plasties. So you actually bring the mucosa from inside to outside. Oh. And then on some people, you actually trim the central tubercle if it's really prominent. But you can't trim the dry mucosa. It turns hypertrophic. So you always have to make sure to go inside the wet mucosa. Wet mucosa and dry mucosa are so different. People never realize that. Dry mucosa is squamous epithelium that has no real mucosal glands. And deep to it has just lamina propria, not much submucosa. The wet mucosa is real mucosa, and it has big submucosa, which is salivary glands, and it has no lamina propria. So they're completely, completely different, which is why, like, if you accidentally inject the wet vermilion, it just goes, and it just spreads everywhere, because there's no lamina propria there. It's just an open plane, Um, and it gets lumps and bumps, and it's not contained, so... Mm. Long answer to short question. Um, Just just a quick question um, in terms of people that potentially are not suitable... uh, particular races are uh, very susceptible to keloid scarring. I'm assuming, you know, that would be an area where you would just absolutely not want to risk a keloid scar. It's very, diffi- very difficult to hide that. Is that, is that something you deal with? And is that, is that my correct assumption? Is my assumption correct? Yeah. So, so I, so I get it all the time. Um, and you can have, uh, so there's hypertrophic scarring versus keloids. Um, somebody who forms a true keloid. So hypertrophic, three types of scars, atrophic, hypertrophic, keloid. Atrophic means it turns into a stretch mark. Hypertrophic means you're forming excess collagen or just it's hyperactive healing. It's too active and it could be because it's dynamic and it's getting irritated and collagen keeps depositing. Different kind of collagen though, 
and different pattern than keloid. Keloid is a tumor. So keloid is somebody who has forms collagen tumors. Mm. And the collagen starts to form outside of the boundary and can grow in places you never even cut. So that's a keloid. If somebody is a true keloider and on the face they keloid, because the face and body are different. Like if you form a keloid here or back here, everybody, I mean, everybody can form a keloid or a hypertrophic scar here or there. You might not necessarily do it on the face, but if someone comes in and they show me a big keloid on their face, I'm not touching them. Okay. But that's uncommon. Most people have history of hypertrophic scarring in different areas of the body, and I'm not too concerned with it. So the genetic predisposition or the ethnic predisposition would be black skin uh, and Asian. So those are the two that form more hypertrophy than anybody else. And in those patients, um, let's say patients with darker skin types, I say you might form some pigmentary issues, which is actually, you just inject it with TXA is really cool. It goes away really quickly. Um, Very cool little thing. Um, Otherwise you might get hypertrophy. And if you get hypertrophy or thickening, I'm going to have to treat you sometimes. And I just inject 5-FU off-label, 5-fluorouracil. And it's much safer than using a steroid. And I tell patients and almost everybody, I can get it to a point where you don't see it. Now, if it's somebody who's like, no, listen, I really hypertrophy, I go, listen, you're not doing the lip lift. Mm. Um, and, and that's uncommon, but I do see those people. And there's been maybe like one patient who slipped through who I had to redo recently you know, and cut out the hypertrophic scar and then um, redid it, less tension this time, Botox, tried to do everything I can, still reforms a little, but I've gotten to the point where it's barely visible. So um, fortunately with the deep plane technique, you don't need to avoid doing that on most people. Like you don't need to worry about, you know, doing black skin or Asian skin or things like that. But you do have to have the ability to treat it when it happens because it will happen to a small subset, even though you're not ready for it. So if you don't know how to use 5-FU and you don't know how to use a CO2 laser, you better hope your best friend does or don't <laughs> do lip lips. Yeah. You know, this is something that uh, I tell patients, I'm like 80, 90% don't need a thing, but 10 plus percent do. And that means you got to come see me and I got to get rid of it because your body's not doing what I wanted it to do. And yeah. then and most of them understand that. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think that's an awesome summary of both lip filler, indications, facial aging, and obviously the surgical indications. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. We we really do appreciate it. And if we ever get a chance to come to California and see your new sort of lip studio, we'd love to come and see Absolutely. what it's all about. Yeah. And likewise, if you come to Australia, we'd so. lo- yeah, we'd love to have you here. We'll catch up for, for a beer. Whenever you're going to come here next, it'll be have, great. Uh, have you ever been to Australia? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course, of course. I came, uh, I lectured there a couple, like a year before the pandemic um, at the aesthetic conference you guys had in Sydney. Yes, ah. and I, Sydney's, yeah, Sydney's one of my favorites. So Sydney and Tel Aviv are my two favorite cities in the world. Uh, they're just so much fun. There's a lot of similarities between the yeah. two in terms of like energy and people. And I just love Sydney. Uh, and I'm overdue for a trip to come visit Miroshnik. Oh, cool. Miroshnik, uh, he's a <laughs> yeah. car and boat guy as well. Yeah, yeah, he's a good friend of ours. Yeah, I saw him not long ago. Yeah, fantastic. Great. Well, yeah, really appreciate your time again. Um, we will put this out next Friday. Yeah, absolutely. We'll put all your details and, and links to all of your amazing things that you're doing. Yeah. Um, and we might even put up that photo that you sent us as well, or we'll find some stuff on your Instagram to showcase what you do as well. So thank you so much. Oh, sure. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 